everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today, I'm on episode 89, and this one is all about CITES. And in case you didn't know, CITES stands for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora is the full name. We just usually say CITES or Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. CITES is uh, an international, well, as the name says, convention or group of nation states that have you know banded together to regulate, not really, not really regulate, but discuss uh, endangered species and how we go about trading them, what possible limitations should be placed on them. And they have a series of appendices, appendix one, two, and three, that talk about how much, uh, how endangered a species might be, uh, what kind of regulations might need to be imposed on that species. More often than not, though, um, a, a big uh, kind of uh, misconception about CITES is when a species is listed, Appendix 1, 2, or 3, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is endangered. Um, in most instances, it means it's in danger of becoming endangered, or sometimes it's not really even close to being endangered, but we have to kind of keep an eye on it because current trade volumes are maybe so high or uh, political climates around uh, the source, the range states where that uh, animal or plant may uh, be native might be particularly volatile and we have to kind of pay attention to those things. So there's a lot of interpretation here, but essentially it's an international body that gets together in a convention to discuss these things. The delegate nations can propose uh, propositions that say this particular species should be considered for inclusion on Appendix 1, 2, or 3, and uh, the delegate nations will vote on it as whether or not they adopt that proposal um, or decline that proposal. And oftentimes, in the debate, compromises are struck, certain annotations are added to the proposal, or maybe a proposal is downlisted from Appendix 1 to 2 or from 2 to 3. So uh, this past month, November of 2022, as I'm recording this, the convention met, uh, the convention of parties number 19, or COP19, as it said for short. Now, it's been some time since we've had uh, a convention of parties because COVID canceled it for the last two years. So there's been quite a bit kind of building up to this particular convention. And in the lumber world, a lot that uh, has happened. So I mentioned this a couple episodes ago that several mainstream species that are, are um, in, in used in the commercial sector and private woodworkers uh, every day are now under consideration. So I did put it out on Instagram that, you know, if anybody has questions about CITES, whether anything going on within the current convention or just CITES in general to, to bring it up, I wanted to take some time to address it. So I do have, I got a lot of questions. A lot of them were kind of similar to one. So I kind of boiled them down to a couple of questions, but I did want to take some time to really just review what went on at COP19. Uh, what were the proposals and what happened? Um, if you are a real lumber nerd like me, you can go to the CITES YouTube channel and full recordings of the sessions are available. Um, last I checked, they did not have transcripts or translations. Uh, I believe some of that has been made available on the CITES website since. Um, 
but uh, I don't know. I quite enjoyed piecing together my poor high school French and um, my, uh, my, my bad German um, together with uh, a lot of people speaking English with really heavy accents that made it sound like it was in English. But to me, it was incredibly fascinating. There is a lot, certainly, of politics involved. There is some science involved, not as much as you might hope, but you know, anybody who's into political science would probably really get into this and seeing the varying parties, the various parties kind of back and forth on certain issues and who was for one issue and who wasn't for an issue. And well, let's actually start there and let's just say kind of how does this whole thing work? So again, CITES has uh, members or members of the party. Those are known as delegates. These are countries that um, have a vote, have a voice. Only delegates can put forth propositions. And in order to get a proposition considered at the convention, you put forth a proposition and somebody has to second it and kind of get it on the ballot. So um, then you have observers that are do not have a vote, but they're usually private organizations. So for instance, the International Wood Products Association was there to speak on behalf of several of the uh, species that were being uh, proposed for Pinnix 2. At the same time, the International Association of uh, uh, orchestras was there speaking. I brought up the Pernambuco issue, Pernambuco issue uh, a couple episodes ago and how violin bowmakers use Pernambuco and how um, Yo-Yo Ma was speaking out against the elevation to Appendix 1. So several orchestral groups, also an association of violin bowmakers, they were there and they speak and they kind of put forth their facts, but they don't get a vote. They're there to kind of help influence, to provide information from the industry or the trade or uh, specifically the application of whatever that species is. On the fauna side of things, there were all kinds of special interest groups um, looking out for certain animals. There were also um, farming associations uh, that were there speaking against the uh, the uplisting of certain animals and things like that. So the, the propositions end up on the ballot. Again, they've been voted there by the delegates. And a lot of times these propositions get um, brought forth because of uh, a delegate nation's emphasis on the IUCN red lists. So this has kind of become like the de facto, oh, it's on the IUCN red list. And it was particularly interesting in this particular um, COP is uh, how the IUCN red list started to get debunked a little bit and they started to realize that there really wasn't that much scientific founding behind it getting a little ahead of myself but needless to say you you hear a lot about this proposition is being brought forth because this species is on iucn red lists needless to say there are certainly there's there's something there's some facts there's some data sometimes there's just a feeling um, that has put forth this proposal and as a delegate as a delegate nation you have the right to propose something and if you can get somebody to second it you can get it brought up um, for vote on um, at the convention. So whoever initiates the proposal gets an opportunity to speak in front of the convention and summarize their proposal and say, here's what we're requesting. We want this species to be put on Appendix 2 or put on Appendix 1, and here's all the stipulations that go with that. So um, then... uh, Additional delegates will speak up either for or against it and kind of put forth their statements. And this goes on as long as there are delegates willing to speak. There is a chair that is trying to move things along. And if they, you know, there's certainly a groundswell of support and there's like one person against it, they'll they'll try to curtail things if there's no other people. Like if there's 
17 nations are like, we really want this. And one guy says, we don't want it. And there's like nine other nations lined up to say they're for it. The chairman will kind of say, look, I don't think we need to see any more people for it. Obviously, this is this is going to move. So then the chair will say, "Okay, the proposal has essentially been passed for voting. It hasn't been voted into effect, but there is enough support for that proposal by the delegates to then vote on it later in the day. Oftentimes, what you hear from countries um, speaking up in response to the proposal is um, we support this and here's why. Here's additional data or we don't support this and here's our data saying why we don't. Or many times they'll say, hey, we do support this with a but like there needs to be an annotation that curtails how much this is regulated or what is actually regulated and kind of compromises begin to be struck. And in many instances, additional working groups are called and the chair will assign delegate countries to that working group. They go away and then come back the next day with uh, hopefully a compromise on a proposal that can then be put forth for voting um, by uh, the delegates. So again, very, uh, it's just like you would expect to see in like Capitol Hill or something like that, including the fact that delegate nations can abstain, which I'm going to get real, like, this is my personal opinion. That just ticks me off. Whether it's a U.S. senator or congressman or a delegate nation at CITES, if you're going to show up, it seems like you should have a vote, yay or nay. I do realize there may be some political reasons why you can't, but like abstain is just saying present. Like if you're going to sit on the fence, should be should be allowed to participate? I don't know. I'd love to hear somebody who has a compelling reason why an abstention is a good idea. To me, it just kind of, it's kind of a cop out. Anyway. Um, what was interesting this year is those responses to the proposal where many countries were speaking up in support of maybe listing a species with a lot of additional buts. And this happened a lot in the, in the major species that we're talking about. Fair bit of back and forth within the range states. So in the instance of wood, you know, IPE grows in certain countries that's considered its geographic distribution or its range. So the states obviously where that material grows or that animal is native obviously have a a strong opinion on this, either for or against it. And many times the proposal has been brought up by a range state because it's directly affecting their country or their people. We got to see quite a bit of back and forth between the range states on each proposal. In some instances showing kind of a political leaning like this is what the party, this is what the president, whatever the current party in power of Ghana or Cameroon or, or Brazil, this is what they want. And then a lot of those industry observer organizations speaking up saying, hey, like we're based in Brazil or we're based in Cameroon and we don't want this. Like this is how it's going to affect us. And you could see that kind of either swaying the proposal or in many instances, people just kind of putting their fingers in the ears and saying, no, this is this is going to happen no matter what. Again, very typical political type situations. But many times, though, what I found interesting is the chairman began to push for working groups to possibly work on additional annotations that could maybe lessen or even harshen, make more harshen, that's not a word, make more severe a particular proposal. 
And those working groups, uh, a lot of times then it would be kind of go around and certain countries would say, look, I don't want to be part of that working group. And we even went so far as like there several proposals were so hotly contested. There was like 45 countries saying, oh, we want to be part of this working group. And the chair saying, no, 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 you're not going to get anything done if there's 45 of you in there and kind of limiting it to six people. And other countries would say, look, we're, we're cool. We'll back out. We don't need to be part of it, you know, as long as these countries are represented. So again, a lot of stuff that goes on there. Essentially, once the working groups are done, once annotations have been agreed upon, things go to vote. And that's just as you expect. The delegate nations vote. And um, honestly, I should know this. I don't know what it takes to carry. I don't know if it needs a two-thirds majority or what. Most of the votes that uh, proposals that I paid attention to, they weren't particularly close. Um, so I can't really do the math to see if it need two thirds or something like that. I'm just using my own like U.S. history knowledge there to say two thirds majority. Anyway, I, I should know that I don't. Um, needless to say, they vote, they either pass or they don't pass from there. There's usually talk about implementation periods. This is passed. This species is CITES 2, uh, appendix listed, and it's going to be implemented within 90 days. And in many instances, further annotations in those working groups came forth and said, look, this will pass, but we need more time. We need 18 months or 24 months to do implementation because there's a lot of moving parts to this. And other times, once all that uh, the vote has passed, then... CITES scientific arm um, will go in and do research and they will essentially do what's called an NDF or an on, a non-detriment finding to figure out exactly what is regulation of this species going to do uh, economically, uh, biologically, ecologically, all those things. And they will come back with a scientific assessment of whether or not there should be quotas imposed or no quotas imposed and what kind of regulation on the um, the science side of things. Like we are talking about endangered or possibly endangered species. So usually that comes down to limiting uh, imposing quotas or something like that. So when something is CITES listed, it does not automatically mean it's going to have a global quota on export. Um, in fact, right away, it definitely does not mean that. It's only after that NDF has been done by the scientific body of CITES that a possible quota will be imposed. So that description right there kind of answers a lot of the questions that I initially had um, about, you know, these things that were listed, what's the quota like? Uh, is it endangered? Things like that. So let's quickly look at the appendices. Boiled down, there's a lot of legalese terms and things like that, but Appendix 1 is like at the top. If something is Appendix 1 listed, it really cannot be traded. Um, and that's that's with a big asterisk. There certainly can be some trading for scientific purposes, but trading for commercial purposes is pretty much forbidden. Additional regulations under Appendix 1 will heavily curtail the import and export, um, not for sale, but just like travel uh, of goods made from that particular species or made from the byproduct of, a, of an animal or something like that. In particular, we were looking, I brought up last um, episode or two episodes ago about Pernambuco and violin bow makers and orchestra members and things like that. We're very concerned about Appendix 1 because obviously they travel with their instruments a lot. And 
then moving from country to country across borders would be affected by an Appendix 1 listing because the proposal for Pernambuco to go to Appendix 1 specifically called out musical instruments and there would have to be documentation of origin for import and export of those musical instruments. So um, those types of um, that kind of uh, annotation says, what does this mean? Like, here's the species and here's what is affected. Is it just lumber? Is it logs? Is it musical instruments? Is it finished goods? Things like that. There's all kinds of little annotations that, that roll under that. And oftentimes this is appended to Appendix 1 species. It's pretty much the generalization is you can't trade it anymore. The fine print is what is now, what are we paying attention to? What requires CITES permits to cross borders? Appendix 2 in brief says this species is not endangered, but it could be, I think the actual word is, could be inferred that it might become endangered. It's kind of word, kind of vaguely worded there. Like I said earlier, this is a situation where maybe an IUCN list has, has, has listed that species saying, hey, there's a lot of, I'm just going to stick with wood because that's what I know. Um, there's a lot of logging going on here. Um, and that gets put forth in a proposal. The uh, Is it really an endangered species? Will it become an endangered species in five years? Maybe not, but it's one of those things we kind of need to pay attention to. Let's watch it. Let's be preemptive about this before it gets out of control and it becomes an endangered species. Appendix 3 is kind of an oddball because Appendix 3 really just refers to regional um uh, regulation, regional uh, endangerment. Again, that's not the right word to use, but it's not really a global thing, but it's in very specific areas. So you may look at uh, certain species of wood and they, they uh, examine it a little bit and determine, you know what, it's not really a problem. And I'm just going to pull countries out of the air. This is not any fact that I'm citing, but say it's not really a problem in Cameroon, but it is a problem in the Ivory Coast. So it's Appendix 3 listed in the Ivory Coast and only in the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, if you want to be fancy. Um, So Appendix 3, like I said, it's got more of a regional variation on the whole thing. Really, as lumber users, um, certainly Appendix 1 is of concern because it just means commercially, it's gone. Um, Appendix 2 is where most of the stuff falls into bear, and usually that's where additional regulations, sometimes uh, export quotas um, get levied, like we saw with Genuine Mahogany back in... 2008 or was it 2010? I don't know. A decade or more (laughs) ago. I can't remember now. Um, But also uh, where oftentimes costs are affected because there's just additional levels of documentation or CITES export permits. Or in some instances, you need not only a CITES export permit, but a CITES import permit, depending on where it's going. For instance, the EUTR, the European Trade, um, European Union Timber Regulation, um, does require both export and import permits. The U.S. Lacey Act requires an export permit. It doesn't always require an import permit, but again, that may vary depending upon whatever the species is. The key point to understand here is CITES is not a legal body. CITES does not create law. CITES says, here are the things that um, we are watching. Here are our proposals. Here are are our appendices. Here are the things that are listed. And here are the things that are being regulated. Therefore, here are the things that require a CITES import or export permit. It's in the U.S., it's the U.S. Lacey Act that is the law 
that says, if the society is listed and these things are not followed, then that lumber is now illegal. And it's not just CITES. There's all kinds of uh, U.S. Lacey interprets a lot of foreign law as well. If if moving this log um, in Cameroon, I keep picking on Cameroon. I don't know why. Um, if moving that log is illegal in Cameroon, um, then it, therefore it is illegal to import to the U.S. Um, so it's not just CITES, but that's that's why the Lacey Act is there, is to put a law behind these various other regulatory um, suggestions, regulatory bodies. EUTR in Europe, for example, is the law-making entity and enforcement entity that will enforce CITES permutation. So U.S. Lacey is the law, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife is the, the enforcement arm that takes care of that. So this is where um, some of this becomes difficult. You know, CITES, the convention is saying, okay, these things have been listed, but we don't have any teeth. Like we don't have any ability to enforce this. We don't have any ability to, to impose law in various countries. We leave that up to the individual countries. So if the individual countries don't have any kind of enforcement arm, CITES is kind of irrelevant. Um, and not every country in the world obviously is a part of CITES. Some of them choose not to participate. So you can imagine there gets to be some difficulties when we're talking about wide ranging species of lumber that maybe it grows all over Asia, but not all of Asia participates. Um, gets to be kind of interesting. So let's look at kind of the specifics. We had um, proposal 44, which was saying we want to move EPE to Appendix 2. We had Proposal 48 that wanted to move Kumru also to Appendix 2. Proposal 50 uh, proposed to move uh, Paduk to Appendix 2. And then Proposal 51 to move Kaya or African Mahogany to Appendix 2. And then finally, Proposal 49, which I talked about a couple episodes ago, was to move Pernambuco or Brazil Wood to Appendix 1. Um, so let's just start at the top, the big guy, Ipe. Ipe is like the biggest tropical decking species out there. Massive amounts of it are imported both into Europe and North America every single day. Brazil is where most of it comes from. There are some range states outside of Brazil, but mostly it's a Brazilian wood. Brazil actually proposed Proposal 44, which is particularly interesting because economically they have the most to gain from the export. And this is where we started to see like the political party wanted one thing and the industry was very much against it. Um, a lot of industry observers were there to speak up and say, look, here's the science. We have these... Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, concessions. Thank you. And 40 year concession plans. And we show a great deal of EPA. Um, IWPA was there to speak up. There were several of other observers and also several other delegate countries that spoke up and said, look, we don't see that this species is endangered in the slightest, not even in danger of becoming endangered, but endangered in the slightest. And here's all the science that says it. And for, for me, obviously I'm biased. I work for a lumber company. I, you know, we import a lot of EPA. We saw a lot of EPA. Um, it was particularly disheartening to see how obviously there was a political agenda there. And there were several other delegate nations that backed Brazil immediately. Um, some of them weren't even really users of the material. Most of them were not range states. Brazil was really the range state represented. The other ones were far-flung parts of the world that didn't you know, have anything to do with eBay. And they were backing it and saying, this is a very bad thing. And 
all of the people who were against this were very clear in saying, look, here is the science. Here is the data that backs all this up. Um, long story short, the proposal passed. EPA is now an appendix to species, but the annotations that came out of this and from the working groups came and said, look, there's going to now be a 24 month implementation period. There is so much going on here, so many moving parts to this. And one of the biggest concerns was, look, okay, we can concede that, you know, we're worried that it will become endangered, but because the trade is so large and because there is so much of the EPA out there, how are you going to regulate this? How are you going to enforce this? How can we possibly manage this? And by CITES doing this, you're going to add a lot of other problems. Moreover, you're going to actually create a black market for what is already a relatively loose net because there's so much exporting going on. If we appendix to list this, you're going to make a stronger vested interest for people to kind of thumb their nose at, at CITES and move ahead with it anyway. I found it particularly interesting. India actually spoke up and, you know, EPA, India is not a range state for EPA. India is not also, also not a very large importer of EPA. But after a lot of this back and forth, and there were obviously industry and science saying this is a bad idea, and the political party of Brazil and Europe and the UK saying, oh, we want to do this. This is a great idea. India spoke up and said, guys, I'm a little concerned about like the disregard for the science here. And the more we let emotion and let kind of political gerrymandering rule the day, the less authority the CITES as a body, as an institution actually has. It was really great speech. Whether you whether you agree with listing EPA's appendix to or not, whether you're for or against it, it was kind of questioning how they do business as a convention and how we need to consider facts and not let emotion get too, uh, too in the way. Bravo India on that. Long story short, yes, it did pass. Um, the annotations that came out of this were particularly interesting. Um, hold on, let me grab my notes here. Um, uh, the annotation said that um, it would limit scope on trade, but there's there's no quotas yet. There's been no NDF done, so we don't know. And more than likely, based upon the data we were hearing from a lot of these people, there probably won't be. But who who can tell at this point? There's, and again, this is why there's a 24 month implementation on this. So uh, EPA will be CITES listed around November 25th, uh, not all around, on November 25th of 2024. But what is actually going to be regulated is um, logs, sawn wood, plywood, veneer, and this fun one, transformed wood. Now, what the heck is transformed wood? Um, this is the first time that term transform wood has been used on a larger scale species. It's been used in the past on very small tertiary species that didn't really have a large export volume. And frankly, it hasn't really caused a problem because there's been so little movement of that particular species. Now we have a massive species, you know, millions and millions of board feet are moved around the world every year. And we have to figure out what transform wood is. So transform wood is defined by the harmonized system code 44.09 as wood, including strips, freezes for parquet flooring, not assembled, continuously shaped, tongued and grooved, V-jointed, beaded, or the like, along any of the edges, ends, or faces, whether or not plain, sanded, or in-jointed. That's it. 
That's the only definition we get on on transform wood. Obviously, there's a lot open to interpretation there, but considering that the primary export of ePay is in the form of an S4S E4E decking board, that would apply to this, a continuously shaped, in many instances, grooved um, board, but also sawn wood um, falls under that as well. So for the most part, I'm going to make up a number here, but 90% of the of the ePay exported from Brazil is in decking form. You know, the other 10% being rough sawn. Again, totally making up that number. That's just a gut fill based on on what I see. So that could be quite sufficient to to say, okay, here's what shall be regulated. Basically, all the ePay now leaving Brazil is going to require a CITES passport because it's going to be sawn wood, plywood, logs, veneer or transform wood. If I remember correctly, exportation of logs of ePay was outlawed by Brazil years ago. Um, because I know LACIAC says you can't bring in logs of ePay for quite some time. It's been years of that case. So CITES just kind of makes it even more official. Here's another entity beyond Brazil, an international entity saying that logs are now verboten. Um, so yeah, uh, November 25th of 24 is when we will see that. We'll see how that plays out as whether or not there are any quotas that get imposed. So proposal 48 on Kumru was a similar situation and obviously it's a similar type of species. And by that, I mean, it's a tropical wood that is most often used for decking. So it's export is usually in the form of an S4S E4E, you know, one by four, one by six, five quarter by four, five quarter by six board. Same annotations there. It's a 24 month implementation. So you're going to see November 25th, 2024, when that becomes CITES listed. And the regulation, again, logs, sawn wood, plywood, veneer, and transform wood. Again, same definition on transform wood. Oh, now I'm trying to remember who put forth that proposal. Well, it doesn't matter, but it was it was one of the range states that put that forth. It wasn't nearly as hotly contested because really ePay kind of sorted out and laid the groundwork for that. And by the time Kumar came around, it was kind of like, all right, this is the same deal. Let's just go with the same story here. Um, we moved on to Paduke uh, Proposal 50. And uh, I actually, I watched this entire thing on YouTube. It It was kind of fascinating because for the most part, it was adopted by consensus. Like, oh shoot, was it Cameroon or Ghana initially proposed it? I can't remember, but they immediately, the range states immediately spoke up in support of it. And there basically was no one saying we have a problem with this. If with the exception of, I think, Cameroon, who said we support this, but we have a lot of our a lot of our industry is concerned about this. Um, several observers, including the International Wood Products Association, spoke up and said, "Here again, guys. Here's the science. It's not an endangered species. It's not even close to being endangered. And for the most part, while we are not so much against." Appendix 2 listing, we're concerned on how we're actually going to enforce this. How are we going to regulate it and what will be regulated? So uh, it was called for again, you know, once it was realized this is going to be adopted by consensus and it's going to pass, it was called for again a 24 month implementation period. What was interesting is that was denied and the implementation period on Paduke was 90 days. Yes. So February 23rd of 23 and just a couple of months, Paduke will now be 
um, CITES permits will be expected on the date of that implementation. What's particularly interesting is despite there probably being shipments on the water, that technically you're okay, like it, it's in transit before that February 23rd date, you can pretty much expect delays at the port because there isn't really a lot of guidance on how the port authority is supposed to deal with that. Like if it's shipped on February 20th, but it doesn't land in say the port of Philadelphia until February 24th or 26th, technically a permit is required on February 23rd and the ports inspectors are going to be looking, they're going to see Paduke and they're going to say, okay, where's my CITES permit? And then you got to go back through the shipping logs and say, well, it shipped prior to that. And more often than not, you're whether it's required to have a permit or not, you can expect a fair amount of delays and demerge fees while that container sits there um, being held. And, you know, Fish and Wildlife may take an even closer look at it. So it, it's hard to say. It's one of those things where while we can expect as these species are being Appendix 2 listed, people are going to try to ship as much as they possibly can and get it in under the wire. So that's going to be an interesting cluster in our in our ports to see that as handled. Um, uh, Kaya, same story in Proposition 51 here, same story as Paduke. It passed in an Appendix 2 listed species with um, a 90-day implementation period. And here again, um, the range states proposed, the range states kind of went back and forth, but for the most part, it was adopted by consensus. At that point, it was similar to Kumaru, like we'd heard the story for Uipe, we'd heard the story for Paduke, they just pushed for it. IDPA again called for an extended implementation due to just existing regulations that are already there for Kaya um, and all the major import countries that that really control most of the import Kaya is regulated under the US Lacey Act through because of um, regional laws in the range states like Cote d'Ivoire Ghana Cameroon DRC etc there's already some laws in place that 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 uh, regulate all this and US Lacey and for that matter EUTR both adhere to that. So IDPPA was saying, look, what is a CITES Appendix 2 listing going to do for us that we don't already have other than require additional paperwork, which is going to slow things down, which is going to drive the cost up, which is also possibly going to create a groundswell of illegal work because now there's a you know, a, a regulation that we can skirt around and get a better deal on. They were denied um, and it went Appendix 2 with a 90-day implementation period. Finally, and there were there were other um, wood species in consideration, very, very small, specific, not really timber species. In many instances, just more like plant species. There was a couple of orchids up. But as far as the lumber world goes, the last one in consideration was Pernambuco. And again, I spoke about this a couple episodes ago and how Yo-Yo Ma was really against it because Pernambuco is the de facto violin bow material and nothing else will substitute for it. The biggest issue was not that it needed to be regulated. It was the annotations that controlled what was a, what required a permit. So Brazil proposed this, and Pernambuco, or Brazil wood, is the national wood of Brazil. So there certainly is a lot of national pride in that particular species, and that's really what their proposal was was about. Like, look, this is our national identity. You know, we have to control this. What was interesting is U.S., K., 
Canada, Israel, Australia, the EU, Germany, and the UK all immediately spoke up and said, we support moving this to Appendix 1 with a big old butt. Um, we have problems with the annotation that says uh, trade will be regulated on finished goods, specifically musical instruments. And um, there's, there's a bunch of annotations that you can look up on the CITES website that says um, uh, extracts, finished musical instruments, finished musical instrument accessories, finished musical instrument parts, finished products packaged and ready for retail trade, powders, um, uh, transform wood, wood chips. These are logs, sawn boards. Those are kind of the categories. So obviously you can tell musical instruments have three of their own categories. Not only the instruments themselves, but the accessories and the parts that make up those instruments. Anytime those are crossing borders, there could be permits required. And the Pernambuco Appendix 1 proposal was all of the above. Like, any time Pernambuco, whether it's in an instrument, an instrument part, or uh, an unfinished instrument accessory, anytime it crosses borders, a CITES permit is going to be required. And all of those other states that I talked about spoke up and said, look, you if, if you want to limit trade, all you want. But we there's no provenance. Um, you can't look at a violin bow that's was made a hundred years ago and say, where did it come from? Was that legal wood? There's no way to know that. Moreover, these bows will be in circulation, being used by, by musicians for decades and decades and passed down from father to son and et cetera. So there's, there's no way. So essentially all these people that have these Pernambuco bows, they're SOL, like they can't do anything. And um, the orchestra observers that spoke up was particularly interesting as they, they talked through all of this. Immediately, it was realized that a working group is going to need to be convened. And that was one of those instances where there was like 20 delegates are like, I want to be a part of that. And the chairman had to go, whoa, people, <laughs> we appreciate your enthusiasm, but let's limit it. Um, uh, the U.S., the EU, Brazil, Israel, and Canada, I think. No, Canada bowed out when they realized there was a lot of people in there. No, sorry. Israel bowed out. Canada stayed in. They put together the working group. And long story short, um, they came back with an annotation that was agreeable to Brazil. So Pernambuco did pass. Um, Proposal 49 did pass. Pernambuco is an Appendix 1 species. So the trading of lumber and sawn boards and logs, um, absolutely forbidden. Cannot do it. Why did I just speak German there? I don't know. Forbidden. <laughs> you cannot do it whatsoever. But instead of it previously saying, look, um, you know, you need CITES permits for not only the wood, but all finished bows, um, all violent accessories, regardless of when they were made. The new annotation says all parts, derivatives, and finished products except re-export of finished musical instruments, finished musical instrument accessories, and finished musical instrument parts. So it's it just requires the first time export. So when a bow or violin or violin bow really is made for the very first time, you have to have a CITES permit, which will then show provenance, which will then show the legality of that particular wood or that that wood has been in stock for a while. 
if it was already export from Brazil, not from Germany or Italy or something like that, it does not apply. Um, so, and this is the case, and I'm actually going to read um, uh, feedback that I got. Where is it? From Mike, um, from two episodes ago when I first brought this up. Um, Mike uh, wrote to me and said, I wanted to shed a little bit more light on the CITES convention in regards to Pernambuco. I am a bow maker, and I think it's worth noting that if Pernambuco is listed at Appendix 1, it has an extremely large consequence for any stringed instrument player and the music industry at large. He goes on to say that what I was just saying before is these people travel with their violins, with their cellos, and their, their bows. Um, orchestras carry these things kind of in reserve and they don't have provenance because these bows have been in circulation for centuries in some instances. So if it passes, these players will not be able to travel with their bows without documentation, which is absolutely impossible to obtain. And he goes on to say, as a maker, all of the Pernambuco wood that I and a lot of other bow makers have was imported pre-CITES regulations um, on Pernambuco, which again, Pernambuco has been an appendix two species for quite some time. It's been regulated for a very, very long time. Mike says, I got my Pernambuco from a bow maker who passed away and there is no paper trail or other documentation. Although I know my wood was harvested pre any restrictions, I have no way to prove this and therefore may not be able to use this wood. It would also mean that most people with modern made bows will have issues unless the maker can prove provenance of the wood. Then there's also the fact that any violin shop or bow maker may not be able to sell their Pernambuco bows, which um, which most of them are trying to do that right now. And depending on the country, they may not be able to sell them at all or move them out of the country. So most of the clients are not in the same country where the maker actually lives. So this is this is a huge issue. And essentially, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a good example of CITES doing its job. And, and I hope this is, you know, obviously working in the lumber industry, I may sound kind of biased. CITES, when it's done right, it works. And I think in this instance, it's a win because we saw further restriction on the trade. You know, it is, it is a, a very precious species. It's obviously of a national identity to Brazil. So there's a lot of gut feeling behind it. There is a lot of regulation um, and, and quota on the export and the protection of that particular wood. But the wood that's already been felled, that in many instances is decades, if not centuries old, there's nothing we can do about that. And to prohibit the movement of that would be extremely difficult to enforce, extremely difficult to regulate, and just downright destructive. And it would most definitely cause a black market, um, which would really be a bad idea. So the wood itself is being, uh, the trees itself, I should say, are being protected by the Appendix 1 listing, but the world can kind of carry on as far as its normal trade. Because of the tight regulation on the harvesting or, or lack of harvesting of the wood, we're dealing with existing stocks, and that is not going to be regulated. And the people who have the existing stocks, people like Mike, who are, are or bow makers, you know, this stuff is incredibly valuable to them, you know, and when, for instance, Mike retires, he will probably hand it down to an apprentice or a child or something like that. This is stuff that is definitely precious and it's in the hands of people who recognize its value. Likewise, downstream, people like Yo-Yo Ma recognize the preciousness of that bow and how nothing but Pernambuco gives him that feel and that sound. And any professional violinist and cellist or, you know, double bass player will know this and they will treat their 
their bows like they're made of gold because in many instances they're probably worth more than gold and that was interesting it was interesting to see that come to light and see how the working group made that work it passed it further protected the species but also did not get in the way of trade so that's kind of the the rundown i know that was a it was a long walk, but hopefully it gives you an idea of how CITES works and how it can work properly. So a couple of the questions. Um, I got a question from Jay on Instagram. He said, I saw mahogany in Woodcraft the other day, and I wasn't sure if it was cool to buy. Um because obviously genuine mahogany is Appendix 2 listed species. And this is where a big misconception is. Because it's Appendix 2 does not mean it's illegal. Genuine mahogany is not illegal. Genuine mahogany does, however, require a CITES permit for logs, veneer, sawn boards. The transform wood thing is not in the annotation for genuine mahogany. Um, so, And this just refers to material that has to cross borders. So if it was in a woodcraft, it's in the US already, it's perfectly cool to buy. However, whenever that wood was imported, if it was imported sometime in the last 10 years, a CITES um, export permit was required. The US does not require an import permit on genuine mahogany, just an export permit. So if that woodcraft bought, if that mahogany came from say Central America or Brazil or something like that, inside the last 10 years, there is an import, excuse me, an export permit from that uh, origin state somewhere in the books. Uh, technically, that Woodcraft store owner, franchise owner may not know that because they maybe bought it from someone who bought it from someone, but they could find out. They could go up the, the procurement chain. They bought it from XYZ company who bought it from this broker who will have that export permit. The importer of record will have to have that export permit in order for it to get into the country. If it came in pre-CITES regulation, it's been in the country for 20, 30 years, that it's grandfathered, it's not required, but absolutely you're able to buy it. Now, mahogany is one of those species that the NDF, again, stands for non-detriment finding, did say that a quota needed to be um, imposed. And there is a quota on the export of genuine mahogany, which most, when we look at it 10 years down the road, we can actually see CITES has done a good job here. And the quality of the mahogany forests in South America and Central America, there is a definite uptick. And the material that is coming out of those range states is actually better than it was 10 years ago. It's been allowed to, you know, the species has been allowed to kind of take a breath and go, okay, here again, Appendix 2 does not mean endangered. It means, just put it this way, it's in danger of becoming endangered. It was Appendix 2 listed, and hopefully we were able to halt that endangerment of it becoming endangered, and now mahogany is starting to recover. Now, it may take generations for it to recover, it may never be the same as it was before, um, but certainly the regulation is is helping at this point. And it's another instance where we can see that CITES is working well. So Jay, buy your genuine mahogany. If it's already in the country, it's certainly not illegal. And even if it weren't in the country, if there was an export permit, it is perfectly legal. Shay, also on Instagram, said, um, does this, does the recent convention affect sales inside the U.S. or simply regulate inventory coming into the U.S.? So easy answer. CITES only applies when something crosses a border. And again, CITES is not a law-making body. It's the U.S. Lacey Act, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, that is enforcing the regulations that CITES imposes and also regional regulations like, you know, I was talking about earlier where there's regulation in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire and the DRC on Kaya. U.S. Lacey interprets those regulations and says if it's illegal to do X in Ghana, it is therefore illegal to import it um, without 
whatever stipulation the local law says. So yes, it, it really just affects things moving across borders. Once it's in the U.S., it's past all that already. So while we can't deny that smuggling happens, you know, there's Han Solos out there everywhere, putting people in holds and, and shuffling Jedi through the floorboards in their starship. This, the, the greater regulation makes it a lot harder and frankly, a lot more expensive to do the smuggling to the point where it may not be worthwhile. Does that mean that We'll go back to genuine mahogany. Does that mean that there can't be genuine mahogany boards in the U.S. that didn't get here through ill-gotten means? No, it doesn't. But it certainly is a lot harder to do that. And if you're buying from a reputable dealer, you can guarantee that they've got that paperwork or at least they can get that paperwork. Shea goes on to say, what role does CITES play in protecting species from deforestation or extinction? Does our consumption of these materials in high volume open them to threat from poor countries selling them off in an irresponsible manner? CITES plays really no role in the protecting the species from deforestation or extinction. Again, CITES does not create law. CITES does not enforce. CITES, as an international body, says, hey, guys, we think this should be protected. It's up to the individual countries. And most of the countries in the range states are delegate members of CITES. It's up to those countries to say, here are the laws. And it's up to the importing countries like the U.S., like the European Union, to say, here are the laws that interpret Cameroon's laws, that interpret Brazil's laws, etc. The entities responsible for deforestation and sustainable harvestry are individual forestry departments like IBAMA um, in Brazil. That is their forestry department, like the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife here in the U.S. Um, uh, those are the entities that manage concessions, that do audits of concessions that make sure there are concession plans and proper silvicultural plans in place. IBAMA requires a 40-year-long concession plan um, before you can even be considered for a concession in Brazil. Those are the entities that do that. Um, and the data, interestingly enough, from entities like IBAMA, um, again, that's the Brazil's forestry department. The data from Obama, because Obama is advanced, they use blockchain to track all this stuff. Their data was the one that was actually saying, you know what, EPA is not endangered, guys. EPA doesn't need to be on this list at all. These are the entities that are helping prevent extinction and deforestation. They're the ones on the ground with a vested interest in making sure this doesn't happen. Does our consumption of these materials in high volume open them to threat from poor countries. That's the twist, right? You know, all oh, this this species is in danger. Let's ban it. Let's make it illegal. Well, what does that do? Well, the same thing I've said multiple times is it creates a black market. It makes that species more valuable. You know, we've seen it here in the U.S. Um, more and more states are legalizing marijuana. You know, does that mean the marijuana trade is going down? I don't know. I I've, <laughs> I regret even bringing it up because I don't know anything about that. But, you know, it's one of those things where when something comes illegal, suddenly now there's a market for it, you know, and that that can drive the price up dramatically. Or there's people looking to make a quick buck. Someone who isn't concerned about a long term concession plan. They're just concerned about their next payday. And that's where illegal logging can, can come into play. But I Ideally, those entities I talked about in the previous part of this question, like IBAMA, like Department of Fish and Wildlife, like European Trade Union, like the MTA, things like that, it's those entities that are managing the force, that are doing flyovers with drones, that are RFIDing and GPS chipping.
tracking trees and tracking logs from a, a truck all the way back to the stump via GPS. It's those entities that are preventing illegal logging camps from showing up. Those drones flying over and seeing there's a hole in the canopy there, zoom in, oh look, there's a wood miser down there, bam, they're busted, you know, and that type of thing is happening. It's those entities that are helping prevent the irresponsible selling of things. And this is what we've seen where you've got a, a landowner. Um, I'll pick on Brazil now. You've got a landowner in Brazil who has all this mahogany. It's like, oh, that's my that's my 401k. And now mahogany is banned. Um, what am I going to do? Well, I've got this cattle rancher over here that's willing to offer me 10 times as much for my land than I was going to get for logging. So he sells it to the cattle rancher. The cattle rancher clear cuts it and uses it for grazing land. The number one cause of deforestation, folks, is cows, not the lumber industry. Um, and this is this is what happens. The land becomes more valuable as grazing land to feed cows um, or sheep than it is as a timber producer, especially because the timber growing on it is now heavily regulated under uh, international quotas. So this is something you have to be constantly worried about. And that's what I was excited about this COP19 is there were countries stepping up and saying, look, guys, if we do this, we are going to create irresponsible behavior. We're going to create a black market. That was particularly interesting and exciting to see people considering that. Um, moving on. Uh, Sterling says, uh, does this mean, do these votes mean that you need some sort of passport for items made with Appendix 2 species? Can Appendix 2 items be brought across borders without documentation if integrated into a product? This is where things, you got to get into the nitty gritty. Um, Easy answer is, if it's Appendix 2, then yes, uh, a passport is needed. Depending upon your local regulations, you may need an export permit or an import permit or both, an export and an import permit. Again, it all depends upon the species and upon wherever you're living, wherever you're importing into. It also depends heavily upon the species. As we said earlier, with that transform wood thing... Kumaru, Ipe, Kaya, and Paduk now have that annotation that says transform wood as part of that. Those are really the first four species to have that. As I said, it's happened in the past, but they're species you've never heard of before and species you probably never will hear of. So this is the first time that we said transform wood is a problem. Up until now, it's always been sawn wood, logs, or veneer, or plywood, or in some instances musical instruments. And like I said before, when we were talking about Pernambuco, you know, musical instruments have three of their very own categories that regulate these things. But there's not like a category that says furniture. There is the category that says finished goods ready for, what is the word? Finished products packaged and ready for retail trade. This is defined as products shipped singly or in bulk, requiring no further processing, packaged, labeled for final use or the retail trade in a state fit for being sold to or used by the general public. So that could be furniture. It could be trivets, for God's sake. It could really be anything. But so far, we haven't seen that applied to um, the lumber species we're talking about. And I'm reading these, these annotation um, uh, definitions. I'm reading them from the CITES.org website. So here's the thing. If, if you're you're thinking I built something, do I need a passport? I'm going to be shipping this, you know, I'm in the U S I'm going to be shipping it to somebody in you know, Italy. Do I need a CITES export permit? So what you have to ask yourself is what is the, um, uh, what is the species that I'm concerned about? You know, is it Kaya? Is it Paduk? Um, 
So go to CITES.org and go to their appendices. If you go under documents, you will see appendices. And the easiest thing to do, you have to know the, the taxonomic, the botanical name for it, because that's how they're all listed. So for instance, I'm on here now, I'm going to look up Dalbergia, um, the rosewoods and some of the ebonies, uh, because that one uh, is, is heavily regulated. And that one actually, many of those actually are endangered. So when we look at, um, let's see, Dalbergia... Oops, hit the wrong thing. Okay, appendix two, appendices. I'm gonna do a control F, fine for Dalbergia. And okay, I've got six different listings here. Okay, here we go. So the uh, listing for the Dalbergia subspecies, and it gives a little annotation number 15. Uh, when I click on that little cliff note, I get, okay, all parts and derivatives except leaves, uh, flowers, pollen, fruits, and seeds, finished products to a maximum weight of wood of the listed species of up to 10 kilograms per shipment. This one is particularly restrictive. So this can be any finished product if there is more, um, in this case, we're talking about a Dalbergia subspecies here. So we'll just say ebony. Um, you've built something and the total of the ebony uh, is greater than 10 kilograms, it requires a permit. If it's less than 10 kilograms, it does not require a permit. So again, think about ebony. Like if you're building a green and green side table and you've got, you know, 35 ebony plugs in there, that probably weighs... 20 grams? I don't know. Certainly not a kilogram worth. So you wouldn't need a permit for that. But if you go on looking on Adele Berger, you'll see finished musical instruments, finished musical instruments parts, and finished musical instrument accessories. Finished is the important part there. Uh, parts and derivatives of the Delberge, which are covered by annotation four, which goes onto the logs, boards, re, um, uh, veneer, plywood, etc. So that does capture, like if you were doing unfinished musical instrument parts, like fretboards or something like that, that would be considered. That would be considered transformed wood in that case, and you wouldn't be able to, to, to move it. So if you look up, um, let's look up Sweetenia. That's uh, mahogany. And so Sweetenia macrophylla, genuine mahogany, annotation number six, logs, sawn wood, veneer sheets, and plywood. That's it. So if you build a finished good, um, you don't need a permit to do that. Heck, if you are, um, transform wood is not part of that. So if you're running moldings on or, or uh, interior flooring, um, a permit is not required for export. But here's the thing is very, very rare that mahogany was ever export in that form. Mahogany was always exported as logs, sawn wood, veneers, and plywood. Um, there isn't really a market for building furniture and exporting it out of Brazil or building furniture and exporting it out of Costa Rica. That's just not what happens. So in this case, the CITES regulation is quite apt to, to regulate more than that would be an absolute nightmare to regulate, and it would almost be um, irrelevant because that's not what's being exported. And you're just going to cause problems for people who are exporting it, who have already obtained it legally. So this is the thing. The answer to do you need a passport comes with a big old, it depends. It depends upon the species and it depends upon the individual annotations for that particular species. And for that matter, where you're exporting it to or where you're importing it from will matter. So that's the other thing. CITES is not the end all be all. As I've said several times already, there are local jurisdictions 
jurisdictions that have laws. And here in the U.S., those local jurisdictions apply to us. So some farmer in the Democratic Republic of the Congo says this is was against the law here. It is therefore against the law here in Maryland, USA, because the U.S. Lacey Act says it is. And these are the important things to think about. So CITES is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. It does not mean that species is now illegal. It does not necessarily mean that species is endangered. But it does mean that additional regulations have been lobbied and agreed upon by an international body of delegates, both range state and non-range states. It's been considered, it's been passed back and forth, it's been worked over, and it's been voted on, and it has passed. Now, it means... NDFs have been done, additional annotations have been put together, there are additional entities interpreting those regulations and enforcing those. Those entities like U.S. Fish and Wildlife, like Obama out of Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of layers to this. And the important part to, re- to recognize is it's CITES listed. It does not mean it's bad. It just means let's be aware of this. And if you look further into it and go, wow, you know, this society is listed for a reason, then maybe it's time to consider alternative species. If you can't do without it, like you're a violin bow maker and you have to have Pernambuco, then you look at the regulations and you find a way to do it legally, to work within the system that's going to protect that particular species and maintain its consistency and, and ecological happiness from here on out. So this was a deep one, folks. This is probably the most detailed, maybe next to the Tonewood episode, where I got really, really in the woods with the technical stuff. But so many people ask these questions about CITES. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to be able to interpret a lot of the legalities, but I do work with the industry and I watch this very, very closely. And um, while there were moments when I kind of shook my head and said, I can't believe this is this is happening. I can't believe they're, they're ignoring this data. There were other moments, like I said, where I was really excited to see CITES actually working and compromises being struck that makes sense for international trade, but also protect the species, you know, protect the plants, protect the animals. Um, I watched several of things about the animals. And again, uh, I, I know so little about that, but it was still very, very interesting to watch all this and watch this kind of international collaboration towards a common good and watching people stepping forth. Like I said, India stepping up and saying, look, guys, let's be a little careful how emotional we get here, because the minute we start ignoring facts is the minute this entire body will get ignored. And the countries who are who are the severely hampered economically because of a, a feel good movement over here will say, you know what? I'm abandoning CITES. I'm withdrawing my delegateship and I'm not going to participate in CITES anymore. And if we countries pulling out of CITES, then the whole thing becomes void and no one's going to pay any attention to it. So we have to be rational. Um, We, CITES, have to be rational in how we consider these things. And we can't just go off of our gut. We need to pay attention to this and the welfare of many different perspectives, industry, political, you know, environmental, all of those things so that we remain fair and balanced and we don't end up becoming kind of a, what's the word we're looking for? Like a um, dog and pony show or something like that, you know? Um, and that, that to me was, was really interesting coming out of this. So if there are additional questions about CITES, let me know guys, uh, specifics about certain species or anything that went on with these various proposals. Let me know. Um, I may or may not know, but I'm very interested in this topic and I will certainly find out. So with that being said, go buy some lumber.